Hi, uh, Robert H. This is Fran. Andrew, and this is Keen On. Over the last 200 years, nothing has divided us more than our free market economic system. Is it the source of every social injustice, from exploitation to alienation to inequality? Or is it essential to our individual freedom and democracy? This debate is as relevant today, in 2020, as it was in 1920 or 1820. So what's up with our contemporary free market economic system? How do we fix capitalism? Distinguished economist at Cornell University, you even have a, a chair, whatever that means, at the university, and a, a popular author, always coming out with important new books. Your latest book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. And Robert, you seem to be saying in this book, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to be saying that the way to save the planet is to stop thinking and behave like everyone else. Is that fair? No, that's not how I would put it, Andrew. Uh, behaving like everyone else, I think, holds the key to, to saving the planet, but we got to get everyone else to behave differently for that to work. Uh, the, the planet's in trouble because we behave like everyone else, and for uh, reasons that are pretty simple, people use energy in wasteful ways. It's, it's free to pollute, and so uh, rather than spend the extra money not to emit poisonous gases into the air, we do it. And are we behaving then in that sense, like the herd, to use one of your words? Yeah, the, if, if others are building bigger houses and driving heavier cars, then we're likely to do that ourselves, irrespective of how things are priced. So I think the main explanation for why we do what we do is that other people like us who are around us are doing those things. So and we're behaving irresponsibly by consuming too much, in your view? Yes, we clearly are. And uh, the, the good news is that if we could get others to behave more responsibly, it would be virtually effortless for us to do the same. So the, the trick is to start that cascade moving in the other direction. Are you suggesting then that capitalism, in a sense, is broken? Because after all, capitalism is about all of us having the right to consume as much as we want. Are you suggesting that uh, by consuming anything we want, by having too, too large cars and too big homes and spending too much money on food and indulging ourselves across the board, which is the essence, I guess, at least of the American version of capitalism, mm -hmm. that it, capitalism in itself is destroying the, ca the planet? Uh, it, it is if you believe capitalism requires you to do whatever you want. But I think the, the more thoughtful observers of the market system have never really believed that. More thoughtful observers of the market system never believed that doing whatever you want was the way for the system to work uh, to our advantage. Uh, Smith himself didn't think that. He thought it was remarkable that you often got good results when people pursued their own interests, but he didn't think that always happened. And, and when everybody stands to see better, we know that nobody sees any better than when everybody remains comfortably seated. And there are many, many choices we make in the market that have exactly that structure. And those choices don't lead to the greatest good for the greatest number. The subtitle of your book is Putting Peer Pressure to Work. What does that mean? And what is peer pressure? 
peer pressure is our tendency, tendency. It's very uh, deep wired within us to do as others around us do. Uh, the world's a complicated place. Uh, nobody knows exactly what to do much of the time. Uh, any other person doesn't know either, but if you take people generally, the, the, the sum total of what they know is, is surely much greater than what I know. And if others seem to be doing something and act as if they know what they're doing, then it's risky for me to ignore that completely. So I think the tendency that we have to follow others is not strange or, or counterproductive. It can be in specific instances. Do we do it out of vanity, out of insecurity? Uh, there's, there's much of that uh, that you can point to in specific examples, but suppose you arrive uh, uh, for uh, a Saturday night meal. There are two restaurants. One has no one in it. Uh, the other has four or five diners. Which one should you pick? Uh, if you don't know anything else, probably the better choice is the one that has more people in it. Uh, it could be wrong. Maybe they chose it at random when they showed up. They didn't know anything either, but... Uh, it, it's a it's a pretty good bet that if others are there and seem to be uh, doing something that they act like they know what they're doing, that there's probably something in that. Aren't we living in an age of peer pressure, particularly in the digital realm with networks like Yelp or Amazon? We're doing, we're buying things that get five stars. We're going to restaurants that get rated highly. So the idea of peer pressure isn't really foreign to us. No, in fact, the commercial interests have discovered at full force. It, it's so much of their marketing is based on telling you that your friends like this. Uh, and, and in the abstract, that's a good reason for you to consider buying it if your friends like it. Isn't politics a form of peer pressure too, or at least democratic politics? It is, yes. No, if, if you hear that somebody has a lead in the early polls, well, you don't know who the candidates are, but the, here's, here's a candidate who's polling well. You figure other people probably know more about that candidate than you do. So it's easy to see why that would be influential when people hear it. So how do we turn the tide? How do we go from a world in which we're copying each other in terms of consumption, which is, seems to be resulting in destroying the planet, to turning this equation upside down and behaving more responsibly. You know, I, I was very much against the, the use of the term peer pressure in the book subtitle and in the marketing materials because it has such a negative valence generally. But peer pressure can be a positive force too. Uh, what, what we know is that if we can get people moving in any direction, left or right, others will tend to move in that direction too. So if we, if we could get people to install solar panels, uh, what we know is that neighbors are immediately more likely to consider ins installing them themselves if they see that a neighbor has one. The aerial photos are almost completely uh, decisive on that point. The houses that have panels are always next to one that has them. The ones that don't have them are in clusters where the neighbors don't have them either. So we know how to push people to move in a certain direction. We can do it with taxes. We can do it with regulations. We can do it with advertising campaigns. If we can push people in a direction that we all agree it would be good if people moved that way, we can make things happen much more rapidly and, and, and much more decisively than anyone ever imagined. So are you a nudger in the Richard Thaler School of Behavioral Economics? Uh, I never thought of myself as one, but in this particular context, I would have to say, yes, I am. Uh, and and uh, my own uh, 
history is to, to think more in terms of taxes, but there are many other instruments that we know work in this regard. In political terms, some people might object to your arguments within the sort of school of behavioral economics, um, because it seems to take out the significance of government. Are you replacing the role of government with peer pressure when it comes to saving the planet? No, not at all. No, I think uh, one thing we know for sure is that peer influences are very important. I think we also know, but it's less widely noticed by people, is that the peer environment is itself a consequence of what we do. So how many smokers are there out there? That depends on, in part, in a, a very small way, on whether I smoke. And no one worries about uh, the decision to smoke having adverse consequences on others. It, it will make others more likely to smoke, but that's, that effect is so small from your decision alone, nobody worries about that. If we worried about it, it would, the world would be a better place. Nobody wants to raise his kids in an environment where most, most other kids smoke. Uh, your kid's likely to become a smoker in that case. If we could discourage people from smoking, which in fact we have done, although not for that reason, we would make every parent more likely to achieve the goal of raising a kid to be a non-smoker. And, and the government is a very important actor in taking the first step toward that. It, it was taxes on cigarettes and bans on smoking in restaurants, bar, bars, and other, other buildings that got that ball rolling. The smoking example is an interesting one. As an ex-smoker, it's always occurred to me that when I smoke, it seemed absolutely natural, almost inevitable, that everyone should smoke. I could never understand people who didn't smoke. And then as soon as I gave up the habit, and it was clearly a bad habit, bad for one's health, bad for the environment, and so on, it suddenly seemed to, uh, my, my, whole, my whole understanding of the universe turned upside down. I could, I, and, and I continue to think this, why would anyone ever smoke? It's antisocial, it's expensive, it kills you. So what happens mentally from a, a behavioral economist point of view to transform our kind of view of the universe upside down through one single action? You know, much of what we do is regulated by implicit social norms and understandings. I mean, people used to argue about whether slavery was okay. Uh, mm. No student today could even begin to reproduce the substance of those debates. Uh, now everybody believes that slavery is not okay. And the reason they believe that is that everybody else believes that slavery is not okay. We don't need to waste any time even thinking about that question. Uh, the same uh, transition we saw in the case of beliefs about same-sex marriage. It was in 1989, 12% of Amer Americans thought it was okay to allow people to marry whom they please. Uh, now it's 70% plus, uh, and that all happened in the space of a couple of decades. As each person changed his or her mind about that issue, it made it easier for others to say publicly, yeah, why, why not allow people to do that? And, and so it's just a huge uh, contagion process that we see in all these domains. So let's talk specifically about how to use peer pressure to, to save the planet. I have an ex-wife who is continually reminding me not to fly sending me emails about uh, how it's destroying the universe, or at least the planet. And that hasn't stopped me flying. I'm not sure uh, if, if the ex-wives are the, the ideal uh, vehicle for 
peer pressure. We have, of course, the example of, of Greta Thunberg, um, uh, the Swedish uh, teenage activist who's been quite effective in some ways, but also I think pisses a lot of people off. What is the model for peer pressure? Where do we start? You know, peer pressure by itself isn't going to be the solution to the problem. Uh, what we know is that peer pressure has, by and large, pushed us in the opposite direction from where we need to head. Bigger vehicles, bigger houses, destination weddings. When I got married, nobody even knew what a destination wedding is. Now my kids are going to destination bachelor parties. Uh, it's 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 all encompassing uh, if we can get other people to behave differently. As more people are reluctant to fly, uh, there, there are times when you need to fly. Uh, it will become easier for government to enact a requirement that if you fly, you are taxed sufficiently to buy carbon offsets for the trip you take. Uh, and, and that's totally proper to do. You don't have a right to impose harm on everybody else on the planet uh, in order to do what you want. And so, so I think these consciousness raising exercises, talking to one another about whether you should fly is a, is a productive step. As an economist, where do you think the most important uh, behavioral changes need to take place in transportation, in consumption, in food? Uh, each of the ones you mentioned is a big emitter. Uh, I, th I think uh, a lot of people think about what can I do to make the planet uh, more likely to survive? And, and many economists and climatologists really bristle at that thinking. They call it conscious consumption. You're trying to save the planet by the choices you make. Uh, and they're quite hostile to that as a, a mindset because they feel, well, if you do those things, maybe you feel you've done your part. What we really need are robust policies to get us uh, through the climate crisis. We need to invest trillions of dollars in, in decarbonization infrastructure. We need to have a very stiff carbon tax. If we don't do those things, it doesn't matter whether you buy a Prius or you stop drinking through plastic straws. None of that's going to count for anything. In the course of working on this project, I've changed my mind about that. Uh, I used to think individual action was more or less futile, but uh, I now see that it has two effects that I hadn't fully appreciated in the past. One is that when you change your own behavior, you influence others around you. Uh, when you put a solar panel on your roof, your neighbor does too, and then the neighbor next to that person puts one on and it, it radiates outward. And so the effect of things you do are actually much, much larger than you imagine when you think only of the direct impact of it. Even with recycling, which is the the sort of the typical canard of, of critics that, well, everyone recycles, this doesn't make any difference. Yeah, and, and if you recycle or you don't recycle, if those were the only two states we were talking about, it would make absolutely no difference in the fate of the planet, uh, which one you chose. The, the more important effect of individual choices, I think now, is that it, it builds a different identity for you. Uh, Aristotle emphasized the importance of habit. We are what we repeatedly do. And so I think if you if you do change your behavior by eating meat a little less often, by biking uh, when you could have driven, if you make changes like that, uh, you, you, over time you become a different person. You, be, you, you start to think of yourself as a climate advocate. And that means you're more likely to vote for politicians who will enact the robust policies that we need to adopt if we're to make any headway against the problem. 
you're more likely to write checks to their campaign finance directors. You're more likely to knock on doors to help them get elected. That's where the solution will come. Uh, but it starts with changes in your own behavior. Are you worried that this kind of book is essentially preaching to the converted? That the kind of people who will buy a Princeton University book are likely to be people who aren't crazy about Donald Trump, who already believe there's a, a planetary crisis, and who will perhaps change some of their behavior, but they're already living reasonably good lives. Whereas in this sort of culturally bifurcated contemporary America, the, the, the hunters, the people who drive these huge SUVs aren't going to change their mind at all because they're not going to read your book. Of course, I'm worried about that. And in fact, the last chapter in the book is about how we might communicate more effectively with people who don't agree with us to begin with. And, and as you say, that's a huge challenge. Uh, if you try to tell somebody who's in an opposing camp uh, how the world works. Especially uh, on environmental issues. On environmental issues in particular, they will be more likely to believe the opposite of what you're trying to explain to them. And, and there's actually some interesting research on this question of how best to connect with people who don't agree with you. And, and one of the, the most robust findings in the studies that have been done is that you should not try to explain anything to anybody uh, here. What you should try to do is listen and ask questions. And asking the right question is the key to making forward progress on any issue in a conversation like that. Uh, I, I discovered a very vivid example of that in my conversations with people who were opposed to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they didn't like the mandate. You could try to explain to them why the mandate was an essential feature uh, of the proper workings of an insurance market, but that got you nowhere. What I discovered finally was that if you asked this simple question, what do you think would happen if the government required home insurers to sell fire insurance to people after their houses had already burned down? People don't seem threatened when you ask a question like that. They think about it and it doesn't take very long for them to say, well, if the government required that, the insurance companies would go bankrupt in short order. Why? Because nobody would buy insurance until his house had already burned down. Why would you buy it before? And that's exactly the rationale for the mandate. The guy with pre-existing pre conditions is the exact guy who has had his house already burned down. You can't sell him insurance unless uh, you've, you've, you've got everybody else in the pool. So let's say I'm a climate denier, which I'm not, or a climate change denier, which I'm not. What single question would you begin with me? All right, here I'll, I'll give you a question that I would ask you. So, so 19 of the, the last 20 years have been the hottest years ever recorded and probably looking at tree ring records and uh, uh, ice, ice uh, cross-sections, uh, probably the, the hottest years ever since the Earth formed. Uh, if, if that's not uh, a persuasive piece of evidence that the Earth is getting warmer, what would it take to make you question your belief that it's not getting warmer? How has your behavior changed since writing this book? 
You know, I, I as I said, uh, was skeptical that individual action would make much of a difference. I, I, I've always been uh, fairly frugal in my own you habits. You look like a biker. You don't look as if you're leading an unhealthy life. What yeah, kind of I've, car do you drive? What kind of car do I drive? A Volvo station wagon. So you're a, a classic part of the, the sort of upper bourgeoisie. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm quite privileged. I'm quick to acknowledge uh, we, we're, we're very fortunate, but uh, we have not had a huge footprint. Uh, actually, there's a, there's a great charity that everybody should know about in, in our local area. It, it tells you how many tons of carbon you've emitted. Mm. Uh, it tells you how much you have to give them in order to offset that. And the way they offset it is they hire unskilled people they train them to put insulation into the dwellings occupied by low-income people. And we're doing this interview in Berkeley, California. You're, um, you live on the East Coast. You're spending three weeks in California. I know you're also doing a tour of the UK. Any irony there, perhaps even hypocrisy, that a book about climate change uh, should be supported by a, 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 a global traveling academic? You know, I do buy the carbon offsets, so that's one line of defense. Uh, and and every author thinks his book is going to make a big difference in terms of the public policies that get adopted in its wake. Uh, I've published many books. I thought that about each one of them. I, I, I guess I would have to admit I didn't really expect that it would happen, and indeed it didn't happen. Uh, the stakes are a lot higher with this book, and so I'm really hoping that it will make a difference. Uh, and so here I am. I'm traveling, trying to get the message out. So the stakes are indeed high. Um, let's think about the relatively near-term future. As economists know, in the, in the long term, we're all dead, so uh, it's not worth talking about. But in the near term, in the next two or three years, give me a couple of things that you think we can begin to change, perhaps in the way we think, in terms of our, in terms of peer pressure and this herd mentality, that will turn this crisis, begin to turn this crisis around, because we all know that this thing isn't going to be solved overnight. You know, I think if more, more people know that their own actions have indirect effects that are powerful, uh, they would be more likely to take individual actions. Uh, and if they took them, they would become the kind of people more likely to vote for the politicians who would enact robust policies on this issue. And, and that's my, my hope more than anything. If somebody asked me what's the most important investment I could make if I care about the climate, uh, I'm very quick to answer. And it's what, what I do with my own money. I write checks to people who are running against people who refuse to take action on the policy front. Uh, I, I think that's by far the most important step to take in the short run. Let me rephrase the question then, because this is really important, I think. Jay Inslee ran in the Democratic uh, uh, primaries and got nowhere. Isn't the challenge from a behavioral economist point of view, forcing people to recognize or figuring out the enforcing is the wrong word, nudging people into recognizing the concreteness of the crisis, given the the, the, the sort of the, the vagueness of the long-term projections, particularly this idea of the planet dying, which is a very abstract notion. I read the David Wallace Wells book last year. I've been writing about climate issues for more than a decade. I thought I knew the literature pretty well, but 
the first sentence in well, this which book. Were, perhaps you might be more specific about the, the book. The David Loss Wells book, uh, it's titled The Uninhabitable Earth. Uh, the first sentence in it is, it is worse, much worse than you think. Uh, it, three chapters into it, uh, convinced me that things are way worse than I realized, and I thought I knew the literature pretty well. Uh, if if somebody asked me what what should I do if I want to think seriously about the climate, I I recommend that they read that book, The Uninhabitable Earth. So they read that book first, and then your book, and then read my book, uh, and and start making changes in your own behavior. Start become start developing the identity of a climate advocate, and then. The very most important thing to do in the short run is to contribute and work on behalf of candidates who will enact policies that will address this problem. It's a it's an addressable problem. It in will, other words, fall under the influence. Fall under the influence, absolutely. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening. Keenon isn't just a podcast, it's also a book. Our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's, Conversations in Defense of the Future, it's available at all good online and offline bookstores. So if you want to read this podcast, please buy Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's. It's the essential analog complement to this digital show.